Hello everyone and welcome to Go Forth, a music education talk show. This is Summer. This is Owen. Today we have a coffee talk with Dr. Allison Reynolds, who talks about when music is first heard and some of her research. Hello everyone and welcome to Go Forth, the music. Hello everyone and welcome to Go Forth, the music education show based in the Sonoma Conservatory of Music at Gettysburg College. I am Logan, and I am joined today by Dr. Allison Reynolds, Chair of the Music Education Department and Professor of Music Therapy at Temple University. Hello, Dr. Reynolds. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Logan. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you to Dr. Talbot, too. Of course. Now, I was wondering if we could talk specifically about early child music education. Is that something that we'd want to talk about? Oh, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> How much time do we have? How much time? How many have, hours? Let's start right at the beginning in a couple of different ways. When does music learning, music development start? Uh, this is the question I usually start all my presentations with. And I wonder if I could turn it back to you, Dr. Logan, today. What would, you, what would you say? What might be some stereotypical responses? When does music learning start? Well, I just had an interesting class today, um, my instrumental conducting class, where I learned that some people might not even start like band until the sixth grade. So maybe people would say they didn't do music until sixth grade. Maybe they didn't mm. do you know, orchestra until they got into high school. So that might mm. be a typical response, maybe middle school, yeah. early middle school, high school. What if I ask you, Logan, when, when did you start learning music? Well, probably, I might say, before I did a little bit of research in, in some of your publications, I would say, like, listening to my parents singing along to Bob Dylan uh, in the car. That's probably what I would say. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so after reading my uh, things that I've written or my colleagues and I have written, you adjusted your answer from yeah, well, something different? I've been introduced to the concept of music development uh, happening in the womb. So like even like the rhythm of your, your heart, your, the, the parent's heartbeat, like while you're in the room, uh, womb gives you uh, like a foundation to it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's pretty fascinating. And music psychologists are uh, learning ways from language acquisition researchers to, to study what is, what is music learning, or it, what is, can you have music learning in the womb? Um, Sheila Woodward at uh, Eastern University in Washington, um, when she was in South Africa, which is her home country, she did some research with a very, I would say, brave or generous mother in labor. And they were able to insert a microphone, not exactly into the womb, but more precisely into what does it sound like inside the mother for a baby who is or a fetus who's typically developing from five months on has a fully formed ear. And so at the time of labor, which this woman was uh, experiencing during this ex extravaganza, they were able to do a few different kinds of recordings, like the sounds of tones from frequency standpoint, you now from really low frequency, really high frequencies. And what does that sound like from inside? And it's all audible. You know, if you can hear it outside the womb, you could hear it inside the womb. What does it sound like when the mother sings? What does it sound like when the father sings? What does it sound like when people are talking? And this is all without any microphones on the womb. So that was interesting uh, for everybody to hear. What does it sound like from within? So the, 
the sound of the heartbeat you're talking about, or even the sounds of frequencies of music. Oh, and then there were three different recordings styles that they played. And you could absolutely identify which would be the, if I said one was West African uh, marimba music and one of them was um, classical excerpt and another one's a jazz ex excerpt. And here's what it sounds like from within. You'd be so able to identify not only which was which genre, but with, what are the instruments in that, what are the timbres you're identifying? Which is interesting because then music psychologists are able to find out, well, what kinds of, they're able to use that kind of knowledge to learn what kinds of music learning may be happening in the womb. And then once a child is born, what kind of music learning could be happening and how long does that learning last, et cetera, et cetera. So it's pretty fascinating that music learning can begin that early. And it's not, I, I'm quick to say it's not a house, I'm not into hot housing children. In other words, I'm not like, let's build a greenhouse and put the babies in and put a lot of music in and make it really like a fast growth spurt in music. It's not that at all. It's just to say that if the ambient sounds in the, in the environment for the children are so audible early, and there are things about timbres and the language acquisition researchers know that newborns can recognize a mother's voice as opposed to an unfamiliar voice. So it doesn't take much to learn. Nobody's teaching them that, it's, yeah. just, it's just happening. So again, music learning can happen super early or it can happen super late. I'm still learning. When I come to Gettysburg College face-to-face -face and Dr. Talbot's having a gamelan rehearsal, I just, I kind of get nervous because I'm like, I, I know that, I know something about those sounds and I've been around the instruments. I've even been to Gettysburg College before. I've done this before. And it's so foreign to me that I am a new music learner when I sit down in that rehearsal. I think it's humbling to be able to be in putting ourselves in situations where we're learning new music, things about music and about ourselves as musical beings. So when does music learning begin? Every day, I hope. Yeah, uh, my parents weren't singing along to Balinese gamelan ensembles. <laughs> so I was also a little shocked when I joined that ensemble. That's a pretty, that's a really interesting story. Uh, that, that baby might have been the earliest studio musician uh, <laughs> ever. But why is music development important for a young child? We know it starts early, but why is it important? People who study or play in band, choir, and orchestra do better on SATs, or people who are good at music are good at math, and that's fine. That's, isn't that interesting? That's really great. And then, so the, I, my perception is that the profession is trying to say, no, but music, like music is important for music's sake. And then I go to Project Play and I'm reminded that, man, you know, music is not separate. When I go to Project Play, that school that you didn't get to see any videos from, we don't stop. Like the, the popcorn video in the class today, which won't mean anything probably to your podcast people, but it was a music play class where parents pay a bit of tuition to the university community music program to come to the room for music. And as informal or as unstructured as I try to make that space, the point is they come to me and it's organized around conversation starters that I start. That's what they're quote paying. The parents feel like they're paying for, right? But at Project Play, when I go there, I don't interrupt their play to start my play when I'm invited, and I didn't make this very clear in the presentation, but when I'm invited by the children to be messmates at their table, which isn't all the time, they don't always want me there. Sometimes they're like, go away, who are you? I know you're the music lady, go away. But 
when they do invite me to play and sit down with them at the table, so to speak, they're not at a table literally, but around the table, they're not saying, oh, you're the music person. And so now I'm going to only do music. They may be making art. They may be playing in a sandbox. They may be using building blocks. They may actually be in the music room where the drums and the costumes and the quote stage little platform is. They may have a book. They may be reading like it. They do not separate. They had not learned a project play yet that music is relegated to this time frame in this room and this building with this person with this many minutes doing this thing, this thing, this thing. But when I look at the broad landscape in the United States, that's how music education is. It's in this room on these days of the week with this person for this amount of time. It, it took me a while as a general music teacher to realize that, oh, this group of kindergarten kids doesn't know that this group of kindergarten kids actually knows the same set of songs. And so, of course, when we would have assemblies, it was fun to have a sing-along. It's like, oh, they know those songs too, you know? It's, it's like so segmented. So that's to me, um, like, why is music learning important? I didn't really answer your question yet, but it's not important to teach people to be smarter in another subject. It's not to make them musicians, make them professional musicians. It's not those two kind of avenues. But in a lot of the publications I've written as sole author or co-author and the front matter of Music Play 2, which is supposed to explain to the public, like how has our practice expanded over the years using audiation-based principles, for example. The ability to know ourselves and each other through music, especially with very young children, and to just be gobsmackingly over, overwhelmed over and over and over again by the capacities that children have for expressing themselves, not just, again, through music in a project play sense, because it can be married with so many other kinds of, of learning, which Reggio Emilia approached to education, early childhood education. The Malaguzzi is famous for saying there are a hundred languages of children. And then with Heather Waters and Carrie Renzoni and Emily Jablonski and I, along with the, the people at Project Play, Heather was like, well, you know what? There's a hundred music languages of children. There's lots of ways to be musical. It's not just by being musically literate, reading notation and whatnot, but these hundreds of ways in where music is not divorced from other things and these hundreds of music languages you can really get to know a person. You have a lot to talk about. You have lots of ways of being together if we don't close the doors to what musicking is. So all of this, also the separation, I should say, between, and by the way, just, just for my colleagues in music education and therapy at Temple, that's the, the label of my chairship. So we are two departments or two programs under the same department name. And yet those two disciplines also have existed like this. We share at, at Temple, for example, music history, music theory, but we haven't shared so much with each other because supposedly we have education outcomes or, th or therapy outcomes. And now schools are hiring therapists, music therapists, to come into the building. And in one of the publications, Suzanne Burton and I co-authored Suzanne Burton's series, Engaging Musical Practices, and the text I'm referring to is the source book for general music. There's a chapter in there written by a music therapist. It's like, how, how do music educators, general elementary general music educators work with a music therapist? So the ideas of how music and social and emotional well-being and 
working alongside other domains where we all could use help in and working for universal design for learning, right? Music just, just fits all of this. That's a long-winded answer to a very simple question, but it's, it's a way to know each other, to know ourselves. To know ourselves, indeed. I wanted to address one idea that you, you brought up, and then I'll, I'll come back. That was a very good answer with a lot of different things, and so I want to circle back to a lot of those, those ideas you talked about. But I, I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners what uh, being a messmate is what is being a messmate someone who's open-minded who creates space to learn from others their perspectives making time to and making space for people to come together i think phenomenologically you'd have to boil down to that essence i think the the thing about being messmates is that i sort of just wish we could all just already be doing that anyway and so we could be getting to know each other still as messmates around the table, but keep moving forward so that the conversation is always about deeper and broader issues. So you alluded to a lot of things that you see in early childhood development, musical development. Do you see in youth music education any areas that need improvement? I think we are making improvements as we open up the discussion about what does it mean to be musical? to be a musician and what are ways of engaging in music, musical music making by seeing improvements there i would i would say that we still have a long way to go in the sense of um, what are the systems in place that support broader notions of musicianship and that means from birth having lots of people like patricia sheehan campbell who's at the university of washington and is a well-published author on young children and musicking, I highly recommend you read everything she ever wrote. Go to any presentation she ever makes. I'll paraphrase it. She said something like, each person plays the role of a music teacher in the lives of the youngest child because a taxpayer, a mother, a teacher, a principal, a politician, like it doesn't matter who you are or what your relationship is to somebody else. You have the opportunity to make a big influence on the, the next person. So everybody should be invested in this idea. So with that kind of notion, ooh, I could even go back to your question about when does music learning begin? And in one of my publications, I'm not the only one who's ever done this, but I quoted the Kodai quote. Do you know this, this quote already? Is it old news? But at one point, Kodai was asked the question, when does music learning begin? And he said, I used to think that music learning begins nine months before the birth of a child. So with all that other content I was just talking about, that's that kind of thing, like nine months before the child is born, at least the mother carrying the baby can influence the music learning of that child, right? But then so can everybody around now that we know that what can hear from the womb, right? But then Kodai, this is before we heard the sounds from Sheila Woodward's research, right? This was decades ago. Kodai says, but now I think music learning begins nine months before the birth of the child's mother. Oh, that's incredible. The insights, like even before the technology or the research to, to be thinking like it's a cycle and it evolves. So when you ask about what can be improved, I think if we can help people identify the musical parts of themselves, not everybody will be a professional musician, but that's not why we teach. I hope that's a possible avenue for some of the persons and some of the things we're teaching. So from that, in that standpoint, if we can help people with the agency, the fluency, the flexibility of making some kind of 
music themselves, then maybe they will choose to be classical music subscribers because they, not just because it's the fashionable thing to do, but because they're audiating what's there. Maybe they'll play in a gamelan. Maybe they'll go to a different culture's music. You know, whatever, whatever it is. So I think, to me, that's where we still need to work. We just we want to make sure we're giving people access. It's equitable. We're exercising their agent. They're able to exercise their agency over their own music learning processes and leave our classes with an identity as a musician. So, or being musical, at least, so that they can participate in the world in new and different ways and get to know other people through music. All right. Totally. I know a lot of people that went through high school, my high school, who didn't identify as musicians, even if they're they're in all the all the ensembles and were participating out, out of school. So I think that is something that, that needs to be improved. Uh, I just oh, have yeah. one more. I, I just have one more question for you. Uh, what exciting projects are you working on now or plan to do next? My goal is has been since Music Play Two finished. I keep bringing it up. I don't mean to sound like I'm just plugging this, but Music Play 2 literally just came out September 14th, which happened to be, it would have been Ed Gordon's birthday, but it's pretty big. You can see it was a long-term project, which was not our only one in the midst of other things, you know, but we did start it quite a while ago. And one of my goals, once that was finished, was to come and tie up some loose ends. So with colleagues Suzanne Burton and Wendy Valerio, we'd worked on a survey that we'd like to get out into the world, higher ed, to find out how are institutions of higher learning grappling with early childhood music preparation. I'll just leave a broad question like that. So to develop that survey, we've worked really hard. It's really easy to pop out a survey with a bunch of questions. Like it's really easy to write an essay test with questions one through three or one through five or even one through 20. But to get really a, a meaningful question and to get meaningful responses seems to take a lot of work. So we've been trying to get that shored up and we'd like to get some feedback on it before we send it out nationally. So yeah, surveys are hard. So we're working on that, getting that ready to go. And with the, the group of people earlier today in the class, I was again mentioning Project Play and what we've learned about um, how to be musical in an environment like that and how I didn't say it quite like this during class earlier today, but how can these ideas, ideas and ideas be appealing to especially people in the Reggio Emilia frameworks who already think of children as capable and co-researchers and the environment as third teachers. And if we're preparing the environment as music people, what does that sound like and look like? And um, we just had a whole lot of fun playing there since like 2011 and right now not going because of COVID, but we have a book project in place for that. And the challenges there are, you know, the pictures and the sounds are worth a thousand words, right? So just trying to develop an attractive book that would be like a possible ebook, you know, so that those images and sounds would be available to the listeners. So, so it, that's also been for all of us on the back burner, we keep thinking, oh, this semester we'll really work on this. And it's not that we're not interested, it's just there are other things, you know, <laughs> so. Yes, COVID. Well, those are all certainly very exciting things. Thank you for thank sharing. You. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the time together. <laughs> keep it up, please, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's Coffee Topic. Allison Reynolds. 
to listen to the extended version featuring our own students discussing choir during COVID, as well as interviewing alumni music education students and social media's presence in music education. Check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Go Forth Music Education Talk Show. Join us next week for an interview with Dr. Stephen Paparo. We hope to see you then, but until next time, go forth and change the world.